Yeah, let's go to Dr. Menon. Sure. Well, I guess I have the youngest patient. This is a 35-year-old female, a mother of three, who has a 50-pack year smoking history. Started at the age of 10. And she had some chest discomfort. Her primary physician got a chest X-ray done. And it showed some mediastinal fullness. So she proceeded to have a CAT scan of the chest, which showed uh, approximately a 5-centimeter hilar mass. This was in December of 2005. And she proceeded to go through a CT PET scan. We have one of those combined machines at Hartford. And that showed a 5-centimeter left hilar mass with mediastinal adenopathy. She saw the surgeons, they didn't think they could resect this, so she proceeded to receive chemotherapy and combined modality chemoradiation, that is, with taxotere, carboplatin, and radiation. She received six cycles of taxotere carbo, and at that time had a decrease in the size of this tumor to about three centimeters in size. This was in June of '06. I continued to repeat CAT scans on a periodic basis, you know, every three months to six months. And it continued to remain stable. This lesion didn't increase or decrease in size. Till April of 2007, when she had some focal enlargement of the right adrenal. We biopsied it, and this was recurrent disease. I got a PET-CT scan done, as well as an MRI of the head. There was no other foci of disease. This area that was the 3-centimeter lesion over the left upper lobe remained the same. There was not any significant uptake on that PET scan study. So the question is, where do we go? So, Ed, we have a very young patient here who seems to have... Excellent performance status. Excellent performance. Is she working? Yeah. What's her family situation? She has a husband. They have three children, and it's a nice family. Roughly what age are her children, the younger children? One's probably around five, the second's probably seven, and the third is probably around... 11 or 10, somewhere that region. What seems to be the major source of personal support for her, from her husband or family? It's basically the husband and the family. What's her state of mind? She's very accepting of the situation. She understands that she smoked. And, well, she certainly has some anxiety associated with the children part of things and all that stuff. The husband spends a lot of time going on the Internet trying to read stuff. But you can redirect them to whatever you want them to do. You know, they go into the alternative stuff and all that kind of stuff. But, And I'm sure there's probably some intake of that stuff that goes on, you know, the alternative medicine stuff that goes on. What do the children know about what's going on? They know that their mother has lung cancer. I'm not sure if they know that this may be associated with a reduction in the lifespan. But they seem like well-adjusted children. How did they handle it when she had the chemo radiation? It's interesting. They weren't around at that time. They wouldn't show up in the office visits then. It's only now that they show up in the office visits. So I'm not very clear at that time. How so now they're coming with her to the office? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Ed, how would you think this through? When did the chemo start and finish? The chemotherapy started in December of '05, and she finished it in June of '06. Okay. And that's when it had decreased to three centimeters, yes. and then you decided to stop yes. therapy at that point. Well, I just gave her six cycles at that point. Right, and, and yeah. stopped. Okay. So that was good because... This is know, before we said, you know, four cycles and so on and so forth. This was Can I ask that. how you gave it with the radiation? Ed was probably going to yeah. ask that as yeah. well. But. Yeah, I gave her the first cycle of taxotere carboplatin alone just to see how things were. And then since she did well 
I just added the radiation on along with it. That is, with the second cycle onwards, we started off with the radiation with the chemotherapy. Full dose or weekly? I gave her every three weeks. So she's had chemo radiation treatment. She's had systemic treatment. And one temptation that you did not fall into, which I'm glad to see, was is that many times when patients get locally advanced therapy with chemo radiation and they see a reduction in size, and this thing went from five centimeters to three centimeters, oh, there's a response. We've got to keep giving the chemo, sure. just shoveling it on, and maybe that three goes to two point eight. Oh, we've got to keep going. Yeah, it's a diminishing expectations type of a situation. Right. Give it a break. I use an example of an apple. I hold an apple in both hands. One could be rotten, one could be live. If I hold it over here and give you a choice of which one you're going to pick, it's going to be very difficult for you to choose which one the live apple and the dead apple is. Because so you could have a very necrotic tumor that's still leaving a mass behind, and you'll never know. And I tell patients we have to give treatment in this setting with best intent. We don't know if we eradicate every single cell, but that's the way it works in cancer. I think now with this recurrence, and you've been following her closely, I think it's first sobering to see that the lung mass has remained exactly the same because you know if you would have put this person on Tarsiva or Olympta or something. For one say, of your trials. Right. It would be, wow, look, we've done something with the therapy. And that's, in fact, not. That's the natural history of the local therapy. I think in this setting where you've documented that a patient who has had locally advanced disease that is stable, and especially someone so young with a single site of metastatic disease, I would be very tempted in trying to do something definitive locally with this adrenal gland. and would think talk that could be done laparoscopically or not really? Because it's... Depends on your surgeon, I think. There are surgeons who can do these laparoscopic procedures in the, Adrenals? In the areas. Absolutely. This one was done laparoscopically. Mm-hmm. Oops, he gave it away. <laughs> yeah, I gave it away. Okay, so <laughs> Alan, you didn't hear that. <laughs> Alan, how would you think it through? I knew that's where we were headed, and we would not have done that, I don't think. Um, we hesitate doing that, again, up front. You've got someone with not clinical stage one disease, you know, with an isolated... When do we think about doing surgery with oligometastatic disease? Our way of doing it is if someone has an isolated lung nodule and an isolated CNS metastasis, for example, where most of the data exists, we obviously do the surgery and radiation for the brain because that's proven to be better than just radiation therapy alone. And then a mediastinoscopy is done. And if they've got positive lymph nodes in the med, then basically no surgery. We might consider a chemoradiation therapy approach given the age and et cetera, and have been aggressive in that fashion. And so if an adrenal gland, there's very little data that's out there. There's some data out of Memorial, some retrospective data that you can get by with it. They actually looked at doing isolated bony mets, isolated adrenal mets, and isolated CNS metastasis. They don't bony do- mets? Yeah, even an isolated bone met where you can actually, like a scapula or someplace where you can actually... Interesting. Yeah. And so where the data, again, it's not that good. Do you have a patient? Yeah, of course, everybody's got a patient that does well, despite what we do sometimes. And so that's how we do this. So now you've got somebody who had 3B or 3A disease and then pops up with another metastasis. And the risk isn't that adrenal gland. And so the most aggressive we might get, the risk isn't that adrenal gland that's going to become one, two, or three centimeters. The risk is going to pop up with disease elsewhere. Mm. So surgically removing that, you know, we might have talked about radiating it, maybe. That would be probably as far reaching as we might have gone. But I probably would have talked about, I suppose, systemic therapy in that situation. What's systemic therapy? Boy, you can take your pick. You've got second line therapy. You've got three agents that are approved, you know, outside of a clinical trial. She's a smoker. but She's not a smoker, no, though she has a long well, history. She, yeah. yeah, 50 what pack of your smoking history. I don't know. What about Bev? 
So let me see. This was not a squame, right? I don't nope. remember what you said. Uh, no. It's an adeno. Her brain is okay and not anticoagulation, et cetera. So if she meets all the criteria, if one could consider pemetrexid and bevacizumab or even erlotinib and bevacizumab. Both of those did very well. And seems the erlotinib-bevacizumab combo seems to be independent of you know the all-comers, not just the never-smokers, et cetera. So we probably would have gone that way. The size of the adrenal gland, I don't think you mentioned. It was fairly small. You know, it wasn't a local nodule per se. It was just a diffuse enlargement of the adrenal itself. I don't exactly recall what the number was, but, you know, in Enough looking at it on the scan, right. that it was yeah, positive. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. it had to be pretty oh, good. Oh, it wasn't size. too small. I mean, it was a change in the appearance as well as the size. It yeah. Was. Clearly, I understand the urge and the reach to do the surgery and to do that. I think that that's fine to be thinking outside the box and whatnot, but we probably would not have gone that particular route. Ed, how many cycles of chemo are you going to give her then? What I would have done is I would only give her treatment if I've got something to measure. So if we made a decision that we're just radiating it or we're doing something local, I'm not giving her any systemic therapy. We're just doing the systemic therapy. Otherwise, you'd be talking about, quote, adjuvant therapy in the second line setting. And again, I don't know where we're standing on that particular issue. What I might have done if I feel that I'd like to give her something systemic is give her a couple of cycles of systemic therapy first, evaluate what the adrenal gland is going to do. Is your treatment working? Is your treatment not working? working because who knows how much that you end up giving and then decide upon a local therapy like radiation therapy to the adrenal or just watching, you know, depending upon whether we do that. But that would be my approach. I would not give second line therapy without something to monitor. Can you follow up with what happened with the patient? Yeah, this was my thinking when I went in. The first issue was that, you know, the rest of the disease at this point, there was nothing else visible, although there was this possibility that the risk of recurrence elsewhere was there. I spent quite a lot of time speaking to the family, trying to gauge their expectations in this situation. And sometimes people have the view that if you have disease, why don't you just take it out, especially when nothing else is visible, with the clear understanding that it's like an iceberg. You could easily hit something else somewhere else. In that situation, after due thinking and locally presenting it to the local gurus on this particular issue, we decided to go ahead and get the adrenal lesion removed. We also looked into the issue of what could be the potential harm if we went ahead and did a procedure like this. And the surgeon was quite confident about taking it out without causing too much trouble. So that's the thought process behind trying to get this thing out. So she had the procedure? She yet? went ahead, had the adrenalectomy. The issue, of course, that comes up now is, is there likely to be metastatic disease elsewhere that's sort of hiding? And that is a possibility. And can you change the outcome of that by treating her with chemotherapy, such as what you mentioned? And she had the procedure done laparoscopically? Yes. How long was she in the hospital? And I think within a day or two. Yeah. I'd say probably two days. It's like an ambidectomy almost. Yep. Sounds easier in radiation yeah, therapy, radiation. sort of. But I think we can't, you know, you have to be careful about the fact that just because it was an easy thing to right. do, oh, whether sure. it's the right thing to do and whatnot. I mean, we so this the other issue that I thought of was if you radiate this, you know, it's pretty close to the kidneys. And given that this is not a single nodule that you're getting at, you're covering the whole adrenals, you could potentially damage her kidneys and someone who could have recurrent disease sometime later, she hasn't seen cisplatin. You know, this was the era when people went about saying that cowplatin and cisplatin were equivalent. And 
in that situation she may need to see cisplatin again and well, you know, you cisplatin is only second line and then that you know doublet therapy is not any better but i, I sure, understand the sure. issues and it's all very complex and i appreciate that sure. you certainly thought this through so this just happened obviously very recently yeah, I mean, right. the recurrence was recent, that is, within the last month or so. This is a current situation where you'd like some input that might be helpful. So we're going to get her a free consult to MD Anderson, Ed. She comes to you and says, I've had this adrenal met taken out. What do you think about some kind of therapy, stage 4, NED, pseudoadjuvant, whatever you want to call it, at this point? Yeah, so my discussion would center around exactly, I would have agreed with that procedure. Not everyone has to. There's not a lot of data there. So it's a personal decision. You have to individualize it to the patient. There's no measurable disease now. So I would not be an advocate for systemic chemotherapy. The only guarantee we know about chemotherapy in the setting is that it will cause toxicity without much benefit. And how far do you go? two cycles, four cycles, and if we truly believed chemotherapy was a cleansing agent that would clear your body of all its bad cancer cells, then I think starting at age 50, we'd start several cycles of chemo in everybody sequentially for a few years, you know, cover the adrias, cover, you know, get all the classes in so we could really reduce cancer. I think the only discussion I would have with this woman would be observation and following up with PET CTs like you've been doing knowing that she's a minefield. She could sure. be a minefield and something else could pop up. And she's She says be, to you, what's the chance that this cancer is going to come back and kill me? Well, I tell her that you know, a lot of things kill people. I think car accidents... Just you know, statistically, what number, <laughs> what number would you give her? You know, Neil, I, I'll tell you very frankly, I don't use a lot of numbers okay. to folks. Doctor, what's the chance that I'm cured? Oh, no, you're not cured. No, that's... I don't even like to use the word cured, actually. I say everything we try to do is curative intent. In this setting, she's not cured. She has disease. So, doctor, There's, isn't there, you're MD Anderson, isn't there some clinical trial I can go on or some new agent, something? Not in this situation. No measurable disease, nothing like that. If she had her adrenal still intact, yes, there could have been clinical trials for her in the uh, second-line setting. Oh, no, the phase two settings. Alan mentioned one with Avast and Tarsiva, et cetera. Why can't she go on because of the adrenal? What's that got to do with it? It just means that she doesn't have it anymore. So there's nothing to measure. On a clinical oh, trial you need like measurable, that, disease. You have to have measurable disease. Alan, you mentioned the issue of the potential consideration, not necessarily at this instant, but in this patient of erlotinib bevacizumab. And you and Roy Herbst published on that. Can you kind of update us on what we know about that? And is that a regimen that you think is reasonable to consider in a non-protocol situation right now? Yeah. So the combination that we tested was at our two institutions, and we saw in patients with second-line plus therapy, the non-squames, the BEV-eligible folks, a 20% response rate and 12.6-month median survival with seven-month time to progression. And so a randomized phase two study was done, uh, about 120 patients, 40 patients on one of three arms, a control arm, if you will, of chemo of either docetaxel or pemetrexid and a bevacizumab placebo, or the same chemotherapy in bevacizumab, the 15 mg per kg, or erlotinib and bevacizumab at full dose erlotinib and the full dose of bevacizumab. And the results showed a response rate of 18% for the erlotinib bevacizumab compared to about 12% for the other two arms. Time to progression was about three months for the chemotherapy alone and about four and a half months for the two arms with bevacizumab. And survival was also a bit better. It was about eight months for the chemotherapy and between 12 and 13 months for the two arms with bevacizumab. So I think it shows a couple of things. One, the bevacizumab adds to chemotherapy in the second-line setting as well. Patients not previously exposed to bevacizumab. And that erlotinib and bevacizumab may be an option, a non-chemotherapy option for patients in the second-line setting. 
And is it something that you utilize in your own practice? Yeah, we've done that as well. Again, we're obviously trying to get folks on studies, et cetera. But yes, that is something that we've okay. done. Okay, Bob? Neil, you asked before about what it's like to be an oncologist. And I was thinking about it in terms of this case. And I think age enters into this case in an important way in terms of the art of oncology. And I try to be as scientific, I think we all do, try to be as scientific and use the data to manage patients as best as we can. But I'll be very honest with you, a situation like this with a non-small cell lung cancer and a metastasis someplace, I would probably have opted to take it out. But I was trying to picture myself telling this 35-year-old woman that I would not give her additional therapy. And I probably would, actually, even though I agree with everything the experts have said, I can't disagree with that at all. With no science and with no data at all, I think I would offer her therapy, if nothing else, to keep my hopes up and keep her hopes up that we're doing something for the disease, and maybe, just maybe, it'll make a difference. What therapy? I'd probably offer her a single agent, maybe a Limta, something like that. Try to get something that's as non-toxic as possible. If she could go into a clinical trial, how would that fit in, do you think? Well, if she could go into a clinical trial, then... Would you feel... And we have had clinical trials for metastatic disease, so... But I mean, just but the difference there feeling is, that you have, that you want to do something, would that have satisfied that feeling for her to go into a trial? Yes. If we had a clinical trial that took care of that situation, I'd feel comfortable discussing that with her and trying to enroll her. Ed? So I got sidetracked on the discussion, but the two options I was going to give her was observation or something like Tarceva. And knowing that there isn't any data, that it's not a preventive drug or anything, but exactly along your vein, that this is the option. Because some patients, they just have this feeling, especially breast cancer patients. If they're not on something, then you're not helping. And again, looking for the lowest side effect drug that would maybe help, maybe not. And if you have to think of it that this therapy doesn't help at all, hopefully the side effects aren't outweighing the tolerability. So those are the two options I would have presented her. I always think of Tarceva as the you know, endocrine therapy of lung cancer. And the way you just described is the way we often used endocrine therapy. Now we're kind of more tied into hormone receptors, but trying to you know, wanting to do something and not wanting to make people who are asymptomatic ill. Paul? Just a quick question. If the adrenal had remained intact and you initiated some form of therapy and the adrenal remained the same size but had an SUV reduction on PET scan, would you be happy about that? Do you care about that? I wouldn't have repeated a PET scan. You wouldn't have repeated it? No. So Let's go by CTs. I'm not sure what a change in the SUV means in Either am I. That's what I'm asking. That's why I don't yeah. look. Until I have some data that says it does mean something, I don't use it to follow. I guess I should be encouraged if the SUV went down, but I don't know if that's you know, just sort of shocking the tumor or whatnot. Or, because if you'll remember some of Roy's earlier studies with endostatin, beautiful pictures of decreased blood flow and decreased PET scans on all patients who ultimately had progressive disease. But I do want to make a couple of comments because I think that there's some interesting points that you particularly raised. It is always easier as a physician to treat than not to treat. And that is probably the most challenging issue is when we can or not do something. You know, not just oncology. I mean, it's all over being in medicine. And that's one of the most challenging and difficult aspects because the easiest thing is to do something. Because if we do something, we sleep better and they sleep better. 
And so that's why the default always tends to be toward doing something. We're all guilty of that, myself included. I appreciate that. I just want to mention that. One of the things that we've done when we see a situation like this was a little bit outside the box where we're thinking about doing something like a metastatectomy in a relapse setting is something that I think Charles Motel had talked about it with colon cancer and metastatic disease is the tincture of time. If we're even thinking about it, one of the ways to do it, that, again, as I sort of alluded to, is try some systemic therapy first. See what happens. If it grows during systemic therapy to think that you're going to cure her by removing it, I think truly you have some data that would suggest that's not the case. If, however, after systemic therapy, you give it and the tumor shrinks dramatically, and then I probably would watch another three months or something like that. And if nothing else pops up, because it's not that adrenal gland, that's the rate limiting factor for her. But if three months, six months down the road, she does not develop disease anywhere else, I'd feel a little more comfortable going after that aggressively locally. I don't know if I still would, but I would feel a little bit better about that. And so that's just something to think about down the road. But what if it did grow on chemo? I'm just going to play devil's advocate. You gave two cycles of chemo. What if it did grow? Now you've pretty much condemned her down that algorithm of second line, third line, fourth line therapy, whereas this is an outpatient procedure, a one-day procedure that was done nicely. And again, she's not 80, she's 35, and, you know, she's going to heal from it. You know, I would view the number one thing in her life I don't think she's thinking about how long I'm going to live for my own self. I think she's thinking, how long am I going to be there for her kids? And she's going to want to see them get to prom and do all this stuff. And maybe she will, maybe she won't. But this gives her the best opportunity to spend quality time with her family. Now, I think that's the, personally, think that that's down the road that we get into. We're the physician that we're supposed to be thinking with our heads. The family members are there to think with their hearts. We have to think with our minds and clinically what the right thing to do. I think it's fair to take the whole thing into context. We treat a 35-year-old with two kids differently than we do an 87-year-old. But I think you have to not make a decision to do something for someone because you can. We could lop off her hand and she'll heal from it, but it's not going to help her cancer. So I think the fact that we can do it and know that, that's comforting to know that we're not going to hurt her. But the question is if we're going to help her. And if, in fact, her tumor grows during chemotherapy, my point was that the likelihood that we we're going to see something somewhere else, well, I think. Well, is, I understand the litmus test, but I mean, you know, chemo doesn't help everyone. Right. And I understand that. But I think using it more is to evaluate the biology of the tumor as much as anything else and would say that. Is someone's tumor that's growing on chemotherapy a better actor or worse actor than one that responds to chemotherapy? Quick point. We took out the adrenal gland. You can check for mutational status. And that's a follow-up challenge to your question. You're going to offer her Tarceva. What if it's negative? I was going to bring that up, actually. I didn't want to go there, but since but you, you decided to so go there. So this is the perfect chance yeah, to so check. Yeah, so you could send it for testing. It would add one more piece of data, whether you decide fish, if you're from those area of the country or if you're from the Boston side of mutations. And it might sway you in one direction or another as far as whether you want to give someone supplemental 50 packs your smoking history likely it's pretty low. So will you give it if it's negative? If it were negative, no. But remember, observation was also one of the choices as well. So.